First they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. Berlusconi flatly denies that any mafia money helped him to get a start in the industry. I have I've always had a thing for black people. I like black people. I'm telling you, these stories are funnier than, than the jokes you can tell. And I said, what the fuck is a brain scientist? I was like, that's not a real job. Tell me the truth. But anyway. All right, wait, give me the captain again. I'm ready now. In five, four, three, two. Hello there. Welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. I'm joined by all my friends today. Yogi Poyle. Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffries. And uh, this week, we're taking a look at David H. Murdoch. And uh, you might not be familiar with David H. Murdoch, but I think it's a pretty fascinating story that I just learned about. And essentially, like, why did we get into David H. Murdoch? Well, we just did an episode on uh, Bill Gates and Larry Ellison. Mm-hmm. And the thing that links them is Bill Gates was married on the uh, uh, the Hawaiian island of Lanai, the right. sixth largest uh, island in Hawaii, privately owned. At the time that Bill Gates was married there in 1994, it was owned by David H. Murdoch. Since then, in 2012, David H. Murdoch sold this private island to Larry Ellison for about $300 million. So it is just something where it's like, well, how did we get to the point where Hawaiian islands were uh, the uh, proprietary <laughs> property of billionaires? Is and David H. related to Rupert Murdoch? No, Are they, they, s- at all? they spell it differently. Oh, C-H versus C-K? The, the difference is that uh, David H. Murdoch uh, has uh, union workers in Colombia murdered, and then Rupert Murdoch makes sure to keep that story off the air. <laughs> uh, but that's how they're so connected. So they're brothers in spirit. Yes. Yeah. But that is something where it's like, you know, so David H. Murdoch, he, he owns Dole Foods, Bye, essentially. No. <laughs> uh, he owns Dole Foods, and... Uh, it is something where it's like, you know, the, the premise of this podcast Read is... five stars on iTunes. <laughs> we just got a three-star review for Too Many Drops. <laughs> Released and, on the day the first Bill Gates episode went out. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we are torn on this podcast between um, wanting to respond to good faith community feedback <laughs> and a genuine desire to punish anyone who listens to us. Bob Dole. Yeah, I think that's perfectly fair. If you want us to be more serious, go listen to We Study Billionaires, you pieces of shit. You dumb bitch-ass ears don't know what good drops are. This this podcast is an op because we're trying to convince We Study Billionaires to start playing annoying drops <laughs> to drive up their listenership. Yeah, I think that would work. Um, you know who doesn't mind drops? Who? Bob Dole. <laughs> It took Andy 40 minutes to get that drop, ladies and gentlemen. And it's, it's not worth- even that clever, either. <laughs> like Dole Foods, Bob Dole. Okay. Bob Dole. God damn it. If you can't handle a set, Bob Dole, every, <laughs> every, every 30 seconds, then you don't deserve us at uh, interviewing... Yeah, at Nanotainer or interviewing... Um, Nationally famous authors, so... Yes, you don't deserve our interview with an FCC chairman. That's right. <laughs> if you can't handle Norm MacDonald saying Bob Dole <laughs> as our clever co- our clever comedic commentary Sean, on Dole Foods. Sean, it's my clever comedic commentary you can't on have concise, You can't have concise research broadcasts without the drops. 
Yeah, you can't so. have one without the other. That's right. There's a there's a unity there's a dialectical unity between the drops and our research project. Mm. If we get too serious, we will get murdered. That's the thing I know for a fact. Mm. But if lawyers and agents of government uh, agencies are listening to fucking nanotainers and Bob Dole, they're gonna write us off immediately. We are trying to make this podcast as unbearable as possible for the eternities yes. of Dole yes. Food. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the eternities of Dole Food. It's like the Panama Papers. They're all like uh, PDF files and right. images instead of text so that it's harder to look through all of them. Uh. We're doing the same thing, but instead of intellectual content, we're just putting drops in from time to time to remind our listeners we are everything you think we should be. It's also like a spell to... Um, if we if we say nanotainer and Bob Dole... It it keeps the feds away That's because right. <laughs> are we are we educational are we entertainment? The answer is maybe. <laughs> um, oh yes, but I, I should uh, remind people. In if conclusion, you, if you actually want to do the work of uh, taking our episodes and uh, removing all of the drops and all of the attempts at humor, so that they are purely educational, we will not stop you. I, uh, I, I'd love for you to do my job. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we'll pay you. Not a lot, but we'll pay you. Yeah, Microsoft points, just like we pay my cousins for the descriptions <laughs> of the bios. Um, but so David H. Murdoch, uh, again, this is a fascinating character, and it is something where it's like... He does all the post work as Yogi's cousins. <laughs> <laughs> they work for Microsoft points. Yeah. <laughs> In between uh, voting for Modi. <laughs> <laughs> Which is part of their job. We tell them to vote Modi. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole bunch of uh, podcast Easter eggs, like the date of our uh, show on Twitter is the day the stock market crashed oh. in 1929. <laughs> uh, we've got a great uh, Jimmy Hoffa quote from uh, the Lenny Bruce book as our header. Mm. Uh, in our description, we talk about my cousins uh, working uh, for Microsoft Points and voting for Modi. And listen, as a listener, if you think the drops are the most annoying part of our show, you haven't even begun to listen to our show. <laughs> yeah, look, if you're mad at our podcast, just wait until this episode where I'm about to introduce our special guest, Milo Yiannopoulos. <laughs> Milo, get in here. This is very good. <laughs> I like boogering uh, young boys, I do, I do. <laughs> chim chimney, chim chim chiru. White genocide. <laughs> I like how Andy just plays the Bob Dole drops to distract from his actual attempts at humor. <laughs> he wants to confuse people <laughs> to set their curve lower and think that impression of Milo is... Uh... I'm going to sweep the chimneys and the immigrants are trying to displace the white working man. <laughs> he's, not even, he's not Australian. No, he's, he's fake Cockney. He's okay. Mary Poppins Cockney. Oh, yeah. All right. Whatever. I don't think I don't think any of us are doing his voice actually, Sean. I think you should pick that up by now. We weren't trying to do no, a good Milo. No, he's here in the studio. Yeah. Um, but to circle back to our topic for this week, hopefully we haven't become too derailed already. Uh, we're talking about David H. Murdoch, and he's the owner of Dole Foods. He's a billionaire. Forbes has him worth about $1.9 billion. He was born April 1923, so he's 96 years old. Wow. He's extremely old. And um, it is something where it's like, you know, our job or what we find our job to be on this podcast is perhaps maybe raising negative things or criticizing billionaires who generally uh, receive uh, uh, 
just good publicity. Um, that's actually really easy when you're doing it about any billionaire who owns a banana company. <laughs> because all you have to do is just Google working conditions and then name right. of banana company. And then you will be depressed for all of your Saturday. <laughs> I bet many of you are wondering when the uh, Arrested Development There's Money in the Banana Stand <laughs> drop is coming. And let me tell you, uh, just wait to find out. Well, actually, if you uh, watch the documentary Banana Land, which is uh, great, it's very sad, it's on YouTube, but they do have is that. that... Adventureland? Yes, it's called Banana Land, and they do actually play that scene from Arrested Development. Oh, really? And then they interview a Colombian woman whose daughter was raped and whose father, whose husband and son was murdered by right-wing paramilitaries hired by banana companies. How did I kind of know that like most of that was coming when you said a Colombian woman? <laughs> Jesus. But wait, what did she think of the Arrested Development drop? Because that's really the meat of the documentary, is finding out whether this Colombian woman likes Jeffrey Tambor's acting. What did she think of seasons four and five? <laughs> there was a YouTube comment which was like, three stars. I found the Colombian's woman testimony very informative. But the Arrested Development drops were so distracting. Um, but so essentially, like, you know, when we talk about uh, Dole Foods, um, but also about like this Hawaiian island, I mean, we're going to we're going to get into a bunch of interesting thing where it's kind of in David H. Murdoch, having done the research, I think he's kind of like the Forrest Gump of horrific labor abuses <laughs> of the 20th century. Really? Where he's just involved in a bunch of like weird little stories that all uh, that all kind of tie into, you know, the death of American unions and a bunch of chemical poisonings and stuff. And I'll kind of go through that here. But I guess we should just kind of introduce David H. Uh, Murdoch because um, <clears throat> basically he's like a health nut. I mentioned he's 96 years old. There was a New York Times article about him, about how he's the billionaire who plans to live to 125. Hmm. He drinks like a, a, a health smoothie every morning. Like a Jack he, LaLanne type. Exactly. He puts like, you know, actually banana peels and orange peels in the smoothie and like 20 other fruits and vegetables. Uh, he doesn't eat saturated fats, doesn't drink, uh, no sugar, no salt. Um, but actually, I think we well, could... he's definitely going to get the most out of those years. <laughs> uh, I think we can actually introduce him from an official Dole video. So this is an introduction in the words of the man himself, just so you can kind of get into his head before we go through his life. I'm David Howard Murdoch. I'm uh, owner of Dole Foods. <laughs> Memorization is the way I live my life, my business, everything. No, he's healthy. He's going to go. He's got years and I'm years ago. I'm dyslexic. So my mother is the one that taught me memorization. She started me when I was four years old. Well, Mr. Murdoch right, is. That's it. That's it. So that's David. So that is the uh, villain from the Ridley Scott movie, <laughs> Hannibal. <laughs> that's the guy that Hannibal throws in the pig pen. Uh, and is devoured towards the end of that movie. That guy wants to live for another three decades? <laughs> that guy sounds like he's dead yesterday. He's still putting on suits. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who's he trying to impress? Why would you want to live like an extra 20 years if you're putting on suits every day? <laughs> well, so, and the story, and then uh, if you can... I want to make it to 125 and be uncomfortable every <laughs> single day <laughs> until then. <laughs> Um, so the reason he's gotten into this healthy eating um, is essentially his third wife has been married five times, but wow. his third wife uh, died of cancer in 1985. Mm. 
And um, if you can actually cut to two minutes in the video, he actually does talk about this, where essentially um, he gets into healthy eating and this kind of stuff. That I can put a problem into my brain and it's a machine that comes up with an answer. But you can't come up with an answer to cancer. He's like a rapper. Had I known then what I know now, she wouldn't have gotten cancer because we would have eaten different. All right, so that's basically it. Essentially, he believes that all health problems, and, you know, of course, there is evidence that a lot of health problems are a result of eating, right. but he believes that basically every problem uh, can be changed by just eating, eating more fruit. Eating exactly the way he eats. Are you sure he's not just using his third wife's death <laughs> as like a drawn-out commercial for his own product? <laughs> it's very possible. It turns out of... bananas are all you need to consume. <laughs> right. Turns out one of the leading causes of cancer is, is unionized farm workers. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that's I call paramilitary groups chemotherapy, <laughs> though I'm trying to implement some uh, radiation treatment, if you know what I mean. All of our paramilitaries eat a vegan diet. My third wife died of cancer because I would never eat her ass. If only I ate her butt, she wouldn't have died of cancer. I guess part of that is to blame for her all-fruit diet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, People pay us to do this show. (laughs) Well, less will after this episode comes out. Um... (laughs) Uh, but yes, yeah, so essentially his, uh, he, the way he describes it is, you know, him and his wife were up to 1985, just kind of eating junk, eating whatever. Mm-hmm. She dies of cancer. He gets really into this. It also coincides with 1985. He buys Dole. So <laughs> I'm sure that does have what Andy mentioned. Some of to do with it is like, he gets really into selling his fruits and these kinds of things. So he embraces an all fruit and veggie diet, uh, ex- except he eats fish. Fruits, veggies, fish. That's all he eats. Fish, the fruits of the sea. Yes. Uh, that's all he eats. And basically, like, he gives these... What le- mollusks? Yeah. <laughs> he gives these lectures where basically... We, we might play just some of it earlier because it's, it's kind of funny where... Uh, you know, it's just like a 96-year-old man rambling, uh, but he gave whatever X million dollars to a university, so everyone has to be polite right, and listen right. to him. <laughs> And, you know, he'll just kind of talk about, like, uh, you know, the obesity epidemic. People just need to, like, eat better and, you know, cancer. People just need to eat better. And, you know, you're going to die if you don't eat this way. And, uh, um, you know, this kind of stuff. But it's something where I think maybe you don't realize when you have a billion dollars. I'll tell you who's not obese. The people picking my fruit. (laughs) They're dropping like flies. (laughs) That's right. That was an excerpt from his college speech. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yes, I guess the point was essentially a lot of obesity might be more linked to just people not having the financial resources to uh, eat the way yeah, that not, he might. Not might is. I mean, like, right. if you can't afford food that's going to make you nutritious, you're going to eat trash. And if you keep eating trash, you will have more medical problems, which funnels the fucking medical in, uh, uh, industrial complex in this country. Also terrible uh, regulations on, like, you know, uh, food. Uh, 
you know, everything's packed with preservatives to make it more efficient. Yeah. Oh, and that's the other thing is like essentially he's all into like these natural food bullshit. But it's like, okay, uh, maybe you should talk to anybody in your company about all the pesticides right, they're right. dumping on Nicaraguan yeah. workers. Preservatives and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it is just something where uh, we'll, we'll kind of get through that. Maybe we'll play some of his speech. But I, I do just want to quote from the New York Times here. They did this profile I mentioned. And uh, so he's kind of like, he kinda does some fat shaming, let's say that. Like, just according to the New York Times, he believes excess weight is a sure way to abbreviate life and reprimands friends, acquaintances, and even strangers who are heavy. In 2006, when he met with uh, D.H. Griffin, whose demolition company was to prepare the site for the research... Clearly, he hasn't seen my curves yet. <laughs> was to, whose demolition company was... Uh, to prepare the site for the research campus, he took note of Griffin's size. At 5'11", he weighed about 285 pounds. That uh, is too big. I'll give him that. Quote, you're probably going to die before this job's done because you're so fat and unhealthy, unquote. Oh, Murdoch told Griffin, as Griffin recalls. I think, though, uh, in fairness to that quote, it probably took three times as long to say. <laughs> uh Adding that Griffin's family would wind up paying extra money for the extra large coffin. Oh my yeah. god! I do like that he's just like turning this into a death jam. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. He's just got people around him going, "Oh." <laughs> <laughs> it takes him two minutes to say it too. He so. went there. <laughs> You see, like, a bunch of seniors uh, standing behind him, slowly raising <laughs> their arms to whoop to whoop. Um, yes, later uh, he did something more constructive. He offered Griffin a bonus if he lost 30 pounds. Griffin did and collected $100,000. He has sent. Holy shit, 100 grand to lose 30 pounds? Yes. Wow. That's, that's called being a billionaire. <laughs> you yeah. can. Uh, he has since regained 22 of those pounds. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that was just... very thankful that he wasn't given an NDA. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, once you get the $100,000, unless there's another 100000 to keep it off, go wild. Yeah. I can't wait till David H. Murdoch finds this episode and starts fat shaming Andy. <laughs> hey, he's fat shaming me before he fat shames Andy, okay? <laughs> You carry you carry better. I, well, some of us have been. Uh, I look like a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> You've been overweight for like I don't know, a y- like eight months, like nine months. I don't know. I, I didn't know. I, I didn't know it was a new thing. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't been overweight that long. It gets worse. Andy, you're gonna need those Patreon dollars to buy your extra large casket. Oh. <laughs> I love that his his insult is that when you're dead, you're going to need a larger box. Like, that's anyone's concern when they're overweight, not like the general health issues that are happening while they're alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, luckily his um, Colombian workers were so emaciated, the families were able to save money on the boxes they were put yeah. into after his right-wing paramilitaries murdered them. Yeah, do you save money on emaciated caskets? Is that... <laughs> you can put, they like, never three go people the other in direction. one. <laughs> Um, but so essentially, Listen, they say that the uh, wages I'm giving people are leading to childhood starvation. But I'll tell you what, they're saving a lot of money on coffins. <laughs> 
But so before we go through this chronologically, I do just want to mention, uh, go back to Lanai again, because this is what got me into the topic. And, um, you know, some people might, I guess, know the history of U.S. colonialism in Hawaii. Better Wait, than- are you saying there's a dark side to billionaires owning islands? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, some people might know the history of U.S. colonialism in Hawaii better than I do, but I did look into it uh, a little bit, and it is pretty fascinating where, essentially, David uh, H. Murdoch uh, will go through this, but he makes his money in real estate in the United States. He buys Dole Foods uh, in 1985. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he essentially buys into the legacy of U.S. colonialism and has been making money off that ever since. But uh, as part of this deal to buy Dole Foods in 1985, he uh, becomes the owner of Lanai, which we've mentioned, the sixth largest island in Hawaii, uh, 98% privately owned. At this point now, Larry Ellison owns it. But um, uh, Dole Foods, what happened was um, in uh, 1893... I mean, first of all, the um, the government of Hawaii was independent, and these uh, uh, American, British, and other um, industrialists sure they they leased land from the government to um, have sugar plantations there on Hawaii. And then, as time went on, they became more influential and powerful because they were providing a lot of you know the export economy for the island. And then they started pressuring the government to do you know. <clears throat> Essentially, land privatization, where uh, a lot of people in Hawaii, the own, for natives, ownership of land was kind of an unknown concept. Mm-hmm. So the government kind of does a thing where it's like, hey, everybody who wants a piece of land, you have to like file in writing within two years. Sure, sure. And of course, natives, you know, who are like working the land, they don't really know, you know, not or all the of ones them. that do know got murdered. We don't yeah. know. I mean, like, they, well, got, they got screwed of, out of this. Yeah. yeah I mean, a, a significant par- portion of them were murdered by uh, European diseases, as is common in, in these stories. Chlamydia. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but so it's European disease, chlamydia. <laughs> if only they ate more bananas. <laughs> bananas cure chlamydia. I've beaten the clap, the sif, the herp, the warts. Um, oh yeah, so essentially... The secret rich man venereal disease that... Is only in the special genetically altered sex slaves on islands. I beat that one with a with a tangerine diet. But so it's called the the Cooleyanna Act of uh, 1850, and mm-hmm. this says that people on the island have two years to make a written claim to uh, privatized land, which again is kind of a new concept. Right. But also, like, in order to get this privatized land, you have to pay money to have a survey done. So obviously a lot of natives are sure. not able to do that. So the long story short is that uh, foreign, particularly American, sugar planters are able to dominate private land on the island. And then... Right, th- but that act was democratically uh, enacted, right? <laughs> yes. By a democratically enacted body. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then the... Uh, the, the Sean, end- what's your problem with democracy? The end of this story is that in 1893 the Hawaiian government attempts to kind of uh, reform all this and then the U.S. government backs a coup against the Hawaiian monarch the 1893 coup um, and then uh, Sanford Dole becomes the provisional president after the United States overthrew uh, this company or this country uh, and later annexed it. Is this uh, King Kamehameha gets overthrown, or is this dif- is that his different? descendants? Okay, got it. Mm. Uh, but yes, King Kamehameha was the one who originally unified the island. 
and defeat at Frieza. <laughs> um, you but, nerd. But uh, yeah, I didn't even get that one. It's, it's Dragon, Dragon Ball Z. Dragon Ball Z. Yeah. They yell Kamehameha when they... You know what? Oh, you that's know, why there's no Andy, drop. Okay. Andy not getting something is great. Sean, continue. <laughs> um, but yeah, so to finish the story with Hawaii, um, in 1893, the U.S. government backs a coup there. Um, the uh, Sanford Dole becomes provisional president of Hawaii, later governor as it's incorporated into the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, his cousin, James Dole, comes to Hawaii 1899 and founds Dole Food Company. He grows pineapples there, and it's like, oh, how did he become successful? Because his fucking cousin was dictator of the island installed by the United States. And then in 1921, James Dole buys Lanai, as you do when it's a colony of the United States. He buys the island of Lanai. Uh, They develop what is then the world's largest pineapple plantation there. Mm -hmm. But essentially the story is, uh, and then Castle and Cook is another one of the big sugar plantations. They buy um, Dole in 1961. 1985, James Murdoch, yeah, David Murdoch. Buys Dole, uh, buys Castle and Cook, and thus acquires Dole and the sixth largest island in Hawaii, and that's the story. And later he sells it to Larry Ellison. <coughs> so the point is essentially these people, uh, through hard work, managed to secure <laughs> a giant island. Some someone had to go to all those cocktail parties. Oh yeah, oh, and yeah. and lobby uh, the monarch of an island, basically <laughs> <laughs> his your relative. Yeah, basically so, that. Yeah, to grant the land. I mean, when I hear the word plantation, I think self-made. <laughs> Was self-made score? Self-made score on Forbes? I'm pretty sure he's a 10 out of 10. Yeah. I'll double check that. But I, uh, because we'll kind of get through. He is briefly homeless. And then he becomes... He, the way uh, the way David Murdoch describes it, I was homeless at 22, and then I was a millionaire at 25. <laughs> well, how did he become homeless? Uh, he gets out of the army, and then oh. he doesn't really have any prospects for a minute. Well, well let's just kind of go through this chronologically. We don't care about veterans. <laughs> <laughs> what? Really? But so to just kind of like go through the story chronologically, um, David H. Murdoch is, uh, is born 1923, Kansas City, Missouri. His father's a traveling salesman. Oh, he's not old. He's just from Kansas City. <laughs> His father's a traveling salesman. His mom scrubbed floors and did laundry for extra cash. Um, They grew up in uh, Montgomery Township, Ohio. I guess they had to move around because of the Depression. Hmm. Um, uh, And then this is just from the New York Times. Uh, There are pills for that now. (laughs) He grew up in the tiny town of Wayne, Ohio, the middle child of three and the only son. He didn't see much of his father, a traveling salesman with an inconsistent income, but he was close to his mother who took in laundry and scrub floors to help uh, make ends meet. She died from cancer when she was just 42 and he was 17. So this is kind of a running theme in his life, is trying to stop cancer by making people eat better, but <laughs> not subsidizing First that. test case, mm-hmm. Steve Jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, essentially, like, his uh, I'm not going to die because I drink a smoothie every day has already been de- debunked <laughs> pretty prominently. Um, but so uh, he dropped out of school at 14 years old, according to the New York Times. We mentioned he has dys- dyslexia. So, you know, in in those days, people didn't really know as much about uh, dyslexia. So he was like, 
he was um, changing oil and pumping gas. He was living in a room above a, a service station for a while. But then in 1943, he's drafted into the U.S. Army. Dyslexia is also like the only... Um, it's pretty much the only like mental disability that you'll hear billionaires bragging about overcoming. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, it, apparently it, it doesn't get in the way of making a billion dollars because they all had it in school. Right. Right. Uh, and I guess maybe ADHD. Like, I think Branson would brag about that one. But, it like, it boils down to they wear it as, like, a badge of pride in their older years. It's like, oh, I had dyslexia, and I'm a billionaire. So yeah. anyone that's ever been held back for any reason is an idiot because I can do it and you can't, so fuck you. Yeah, none of them are like, I have complete loss of object permanence. And I still became a billionaire. Right, right. I thought that order to kill those workers was the lease for my condo. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I signed it. I said, call the workers, <laughs> not kill the workers. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, but yeah, so he's drafted into the U.S. Army in 1943. Um, I don't know if he sees combat, but I'm just going to assume he doesn't because anybody who did would probably mention it. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it was the silent generation. Maybe he was deployed and he doesn't talk about it. But he's never mentioned any sort of combat deployment, so I assume he doesn't actually get deployed to the front lines. But regardless, 1943, drafted by the U.S. Army, and then he's uh, uh, leaves the Army in 1945, he returns to Detroit, and then it's there that he's briefly homeless. And this is kind of the thing he really talks up. Because, you know, like, he gives these lectures where he kind of talks like a lot of billionaires, like, if you want to be like me, just work hard right, and, right. and this kind of nonsense. And it's like, well, the actual story of him being homeless in Detroit and becoming a millionaire is something that is really so absurd to imagine happening today. And that's basically this. He's homeless. He goes uh, regularly. He goes to a diner because he knows a guy at the diner who can get him free sandwiches and coffee. Mm -hmm. He's at the diner. He meets the manager of a, a loan corporation called Household Finance, and then the manager gives him a loan to buy the diner. A homeless what? person. <laughs> Just gives him a loan to yes. buy that diner? Yes. Uh, he gives him a loan. Basically, this manager that he meets, uh, household finance, gives him $450 in 1945 money. Uh, and then he recommends him to uh, Seaboard Finance. Either that or Seabold. I'm you not sure. You could buy which a diner for $450? For $1,200. Because oh. he gets 450 from household finance. And then I believe 450 from Seaboard Finance. And then the owner agrees to loan him the remaining $300. So, essentially, this homeless veteran... This is a diner in a major urban center. In, in Detroit. In Detroit, yes. Yeah. So, this... this $1,200. Yes. In uh, 2019, it's $17,036. Yes. And we all know how easy it is today for homeless veterans to get $20,000 small business loans. Look, next time I see a homeless guy outside of Kellogg's Diner in Williamsburg... Mm-hmm. You're like, you get $17,000. <laughs> you can buy that. <laughs> I'm going to give you 20, turn it 000, around for yourself. Twenty thousand dollars to um, to not buy this diner because <laughs> diners are actually a lot more expensive now. Never, no, what? Never mind. Yeah, you can't even buy a diner for seventeen grand now. That's the other thing. Well, but it's fuck being able to buy a diner. You can't get access to seventeen grand. Yes, homeless, let alone people with working jobs. I mean, like it's not that. This Yogi, is the story spoken, he sticks to. That's the that's. 
Those are the words of a man who's never stolen a social it's security made number. Bullshit. Well, it's it's interesting. Small business loan to a homeless person. Yeah, I, I, right. That's really the story that he goes with. Is yeah, this is how I got? Yeah, this is how I got my start. Homeless well, and getting food on the on the side from my friend uh, Buki at hey, the diner, <laughs> and then hey, homeless Joe. Yeah, right. It's twenty thousand right. dollars. What? There's zero levels of like this. Probably didn't happen. Zero down. Now imagine like the homeless population in Detroit mm-hmm. is maybe a little closer to what it is now and how many people are in that diner asking for free sandwiches <laughs> and the chance of one of them getting a loan big enough to purchase the diner. Wait, I know I know how to save homeless people. We give them $20,000 loans <laughs> to start their own podcast. Okay, I like this. My lease is ending soon. I might you as well need $20. This <laughs> Um, but yeah, so it is, uh, and I haven't done a deep dive on this, but I did find this article from a U.S. Veterans Magazine, and oh. basically, it is interesting where, according to U.S. Veterans Magazine, after World War II, almost half of World War II veterans founded their own business, and they say that uh, the country, the U.S.'s current version of the GI Bill for you know veterans benefits, mm-hmm. it's you know more generous on some things, but it does not provide. Uh, access to low interest loans to start a business the way the GI Bill of World War II did. So it is something where it's like uh, perhaps it was easier for veterans to get access to credit after World War II than it is today. Well, maybe today's veterans should have fought in a better war. (laughs) (laughs) GI Bill. Yeah. Less popular than GI Joe. All right. What are we doing here, huh? Pork chop sandwiches. Yeah. Um, but so it is just something where it's like, you know, again, this is, uh, he, he gives all these speeches about, you know, how his life is like an inspiration and all this hard work, but Mm -hmm. it's also like completely lightning in a bottle situation where it's simply absurd to imagine today a homeless veteran even getting a $450 loan, much less less a $17,000 loan, um, but essentially, he's able to get these two loans. He buys the diner. A year later, a little less than a year later, he sells it for $1,900, so $700 profit. He makes that selling the diner. He uses this to buy a car, mm-hmm. takes the car, goes with his wife, moves to Arizona, and then he starts building houses. He's, but, he's married at 20-whatever? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, he's been married five times, so he's gone. Oh, okay, got you. Sure. <laughs> yeah, you got to start early. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but so it's he, not a sprint. I, I get. I guess so. <laughs> he goes to uh, Phoenix, Arizona. He gets a loan from the bank there to build a house. And the way he describes it, he's building the house. Guy comes up to him and says, "Hey, I'll buy that house off you." And originally he was planning to live in it. And then he was like, "Okay, give me a day. I'll think of a price." And then he comes back and sells the house. Uh, he says he sells it for a nine hundred dollar profit in nineteen forties dollars. Then he builds a second house and a third house and like. The way he describes it is, um, uh, I was build. This is from the New York Times. He says, "I was building as fast as I could break uh, as I could break ground." He says, "Bang, bang, bang!" I could hardly get a house finished before it was sold. Um, and this is, you know, of course, all these returning veterans from World War II have, you know, VA home loans and all that. So there's a huge this the creation of the American suburbs, right. tons of demand. Mm-hmm. So he's just making money hand over fist building houses. Americans, Americans can build houses really fucking fast. <laughs> yeah. 
when there's demand. That's one of the great stories of America. Everyone, everyone tells you, you know, how, the best way to make a lot of money is to go into the home building business and build a lot of homes by yourself very fast. Oh, I'm sure he had a business hiring people to do this. He wasn't actually doing it. Right? Yes, he like hired a carpenter and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, so the know? loan was to hire. He had a construction company. Right, right. So yes, he's around this time after he sells the first house, he starts a construction company. I just like how he describes it as. Bang, bang, bang. Bang, Wait, bang, so, bang. So he wasn't Killing even Killing workers who disobey. <laughs> he, he wasn't even building his know. own house. He was paying a carpenter and then skimmed off a $900 profit from Basically. what he was paying the carpenter. Right, right. <laughs> Just because you're dyslexic doesn't mean you can't understand how capitalism works. <laughs> um, but it is also uh, uh, something where uh, I'm sure... Uh, he might have been involved in, let's say, uh, government redlining and these sorts of things. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, black veterans, they probably were not getting these. (laughs) Yes. I don't think black veterans can get houses in Arizona today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Rest in peace, John McCain. But yes, he used he used these opportunities that anyone today still has access to. Uh, <laughs> you know, the uh, answers to uh, all of man's questions are in heaven, but unfortunately, they're above John McCain's head. <laughs> um, but so basically, it's just you know this post World War II housing boom. He's his cells the second. A good soldier wouldn't get shot down. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he, uh, <laughs> he builds a second and a third home. He sells them. He's, then he's moving into office buildings. He's making money hand over fist at this, this point, you know, fifties, uh, sixties. Do we know what he did in world war two? Like, no, we don't know. Oh, okay. I, I, I looked a fair bit. I couldn't find anything, but yeah. I assume he pushed papers around and <laughs> yeah, he was probably something that's like a private contractor now. Yeah. I assumed he uh, pushed papers he wasn't able to read around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder how or if the draft accounted for his dyslexia. I'm sure they did. He, he says uh, he ran an ASMR <laughs> thing <laughs> for, for injured for injured veterans. Yeah, those used to be radio programs that so they play on the front. <laughs> Help our boys overseas. <laughs> he spoke slow then too. Help our boys overseas. This, like, boy, this boy can't fight, but. Man, his voice is so soothing. <laughs> now, I'm today going to be looking at a Luger pulled from the cold, dead fingers of a Jerry. <laughs> now, it's real smooth on top with some dried blood. But the magazine still comes out real nice. <laughs> you hear that? <laughs> Sarge, I don't know if I would have been able to fight if it wasn't for that David H. Murdoch program <laughs> where he, he crinkles a paper bag into the, into the radio and, and I can feel a sensation. It helps me forget about watching my best friend have his brains blown apart in Italy. <laughs> I heard the H stands for humor. <laughs> I still think about Dave sometimes when <laughs> when I can't sleep at night. Yeah, the only thing that gets me off at night is his voice. Just just spent so many nights falling asleep jerking off to his voice. I just can't do it without his nice slow draw. <laughs> his, his mouth noises. I think, I That's think why we lost Vietnam. There were no ASMR programs. <laughs> 
Ooh, just nice. <laughs> <laughs> I think about my friend Dave when I'm homeless sitting outside this diner <laughs> <laughs> that I can't get a loan to buy because I'm African American. <laughs> Um, but so regardless, uh, and that's, you know, basically the story. He rides this. Yeah, if he were black, he wouldn't even have been allowed in the diner. <laughs> no. Uh, they wouldn't call him dyslexic either. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he rides, um, he rides this post-World War II boom where we mentioned, you know, he's building more and more houses, selling more and more houses, moving into office buildings, selling more and more office buildings. And um, the way he tells it is then he starts moving into businesses adjacent to housing. He buys, you know, like a brick company, cement, sand, granite, all these other businesses because he's making all this money from real estate. He needs a place to put it, uh, transportation companies. And, uh, Whoa, hold on. Granite? Yeah. yeah. You need granite. Is it granite? Granite. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> granite? I've never heard the A and the I be equally uh, spaced out in the vowel in granite. We're going to get a two-star review for pronunciation. <laughs> granite. Um, but so, uh, regardless, uh, he starts dumping his excess money into other companies, originally buying stocks, then buying whole companies. Uh, and then he moves to Los Angeles, I believe, in the, uh, in the 1960s. Um, and so what happens here is essentially... He, <laughs> he just starred in silent movies that were five hours long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he buys into a bunch of companies in the, throughout the 60s and 70s. 1978, he, he acquires control of international mining. And it is just something where essentially, like... I don't know how involved he was in day-to-day, but his fortune starts to build off uh, pretty exploitative and, uh, I would say, downright evil industries. What year, uh, is it, what year would this be? 1978, he buys international mining. Mm. Um, but also in the 70s, he buys Iowa beef, or he buys an 18% stake. It becomes one of the largest shareholders of Iowa Beef Packers Incorporated. And it is pretty interesting because I found this, if you read the book Fast Food Nation, mm-hmm. it, uh, it talks about... Iowa Beef Packers Incorporated, right. IBP, and basically how they are the people who destroyed uh, Chicago's unionized meatpacking industry. Because, you know, if you're uh, familiar with Upton Sinclair, The Jungle, you know uh, Chicago used to be like the big kind of meat-producing uh, area for the United States. Conditions used to be horrific, but these workers... Well, yeah, they just needed the bare necessities. <laughs> <laughs> these workers unionized, uh, particularly uh, by World War II, by the end of World War II, to the point where it was still a rough job, but you got, like, good benefits. So Iowa Beef Packers is founded in 1961 with a $300,000 loan from the Small Business Administration. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically, its entire business plan is to destroy unionized labor and slaughterhouses. Right. Uh, basically, they uh, from the book uh, uh, Fast Food Nation... Uh, IBP puts their slaughterhouses in rural areas away from urban union power. Uh, They transport by truck instead of rail. Um, Then they start in 1967. They ship uh, vacuum-sealed smaller cuts of beef rather than, you know, uh, the whole sides of beef that were common before then. And the idea is that supermarkets can now fire their skilled unionized butchers, you know. Right, right, huh. And, like, another case, IBP hires scabs to replace striking worker. To, Next decode. thing you know, they're going to find a way to get rid of the bakers and the candlestick makers. <laughs> <laughs> IBP hires scabs to replace uh, striking Dakota City workers, 1969. Uh, 1970, IBP has a secret meeting from Fast Food Nation. They have a secret meeting with a union representative of the uh, five families of the New York City Mafia. <laughs> uh, because what happened was... They're unionized? <laughs> yes. 
Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the original union right there. You you have to hire Irish scabs <laughs> to replace your striking button man. <laughs> These fucking Irish scabs will whack anybody during strike time. <laughs> Don't cross that line. Don't cross the figure line. Listen, boss, we're just looking for health care. Now, see? No protection money until we get a fair contract. Ten years. Hey, Tone, Polly and I were thinking, like, other jobs, they got health insurance. We get to see titties at the bar. But, like, I got a problem with my dick. I can't afford to fix it. I can't enjoy the titties. What, you can't enjoy titties with a broke dick? What are you, Mussolini? Okay, I'm sorry I asked. (laughs) Now, Tone, I was thinking, you know, the soldiers do most of the labor in this business, yet the bosses are the ones who make all the management decisions. (laughs) Seeing as how this this organization could not actually function without soldiers, (laughs) shouldn't soldiers actually run the organization? Some sort of soldier-owned cooperative mafia. Did AJ give you that Karl Marx book? (laughs) I told him not to give you that book, and we don't pay you for thinking. We pay you for soldiering. Now soldier on, you soldier. Uh, but yeah, so um, from Fast Food Nation, IBP has this secret meeting with a union rep for uh, um, the New York Mafia because 1970, they, uh, in Dakota City, 1969, their Dakota City workers are striking. So unionized butchers in New York City won't take their shipments mm-hmm. in solidarity with the striking workers. So IBP meets with uh, this, this uh, mafia representative and essentially said they strike an agreement, which is for fi- there's a five cent commission on every 10 pounds of beef sold in New York for the New York mafia. <laughs> and, then a- and then after this is struck, then of course the um, uh, New York unions are like, oh, okay, that's fine. Cause the leadership is all in the pocket of the right, mafia right. and says, yeah, sure. We'll process your beef again. <clears throat> and so that's uh, the basically the story of IBP, and um, IBP also is a trailblazer. And, and the Jets Stadium. <laughs> uh, IBP was also a trailblazer in, uh, from Fast Food Nation in recruiting migrant labor. Um, they were among the first to recognize that recent immigrants would work for lower wages than American citizens and would be more reluctant to join unions because of their tenuous legal status. Right, right. Of course, you know... Leaders. Yeah, yeah, you know, if um, illegal migrant labor threatened to unionize, you can just have them deport it. Right. So it is kind of a, a thing where it's like that was IBP's whole business model. And like from Fast Food Nation, one, uh, I think, INS study estimated that about 25% of their workforce was um, undocumented immigrants. So it is something where their entire strategy is to destroy a unionized industry. And that gets margins down. And then this is how David uh, H. Murdoch becomes a billionaire is investing in this corporation that destroys a unionized business model by uh, creating a race to the bottom between uh, meatpacking uh, in the meatpacking industry. Right. And, you know, IBP also benefited from a lot of government tax uh, incentives. We mentioned $300,000 small business loan. But the point of all this is, you know, we've really destroyed... We've dug our own grave with d- government policy. Our oversized grave. <laughs> You're making Because of how fat we are. <laughs> You're making the meat industry sound wasteful and barbaric. <laughs> um, 
and, and so you know, so he buys into this. He um, uh, there's a Washington Post story from 1982 which um, describes David H. Murdoch at the time. He gets in 1982 a development deal with um, NBC uh, with a uh, uh, downtown Detroit. With the city's market center development corp, we might have mentioned this. Like New York City has you one bet of at these. At the time, he was like going on TV and being like, "You know what'll prevent cancer? Yeah, a good old American hamburger." Yeah, he only eats whatever his the, his portfolio of companies make. Right, right, his, right, his right. cure for so cancer is his company. investments. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but so yes, he uh, he he gets this d- deal with uh, Baltimore's Market City Development Corp because they're trying to do you know uh, revitalize downtown Baltimore, <laughs> which was of course wildly successful, uh, so much so that no TV series were made <laughs> about uh, Baltimore uh, and that uh, uh, stained the public imagination of what's <laughs> actually going on there. Um, but yeah, so 1982, he gets the deal with the Market Center Development Corp. And we've kind of mentioned this. It, New York City has one of these. New York State has one of these. A lot of places have these kind of unelected boards, which can just sign deals with businesses that say, hey, you get a massive tax exemption if you build here or do this. And it is just kind of like a very unaccountable, undemocratic giveaway to businesses. Like just from the the Those Washington. boards are unelected. Like they just. I mean, they're they're appointed. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, but right. you know, there's there's really no democratic oversight right, of right. like this board saying, "Hey, we're going to give yeah. them, uh, you know, what massive below market deal on land or." They, a, they function as like a trade association, so it's just like a cartel of businesses. I mean, that dole out um, dole that dole that dole out rights to I'm develop sure certain areas, and like they'll they'll fight to get tax abatements and stuff like that. Was this like the crew that was talking to, like, was the board of people that was talking to Amazon for their HQ2 when that was going on, was that a similar board to what we're talking about now, Sean? Yeah, I mean, various cities and municipalities have their own version of this. Mm. But yes, like a lot of these tax abatements, uh, I think New York State was the one that originally offered it to Amazon. And then there was, you know, fierce public backlash. But most of the time they're able to do this without the public knowing it's happening at all. Um, but, yeah, so just from a 1982 Washington but, Post story. I mean, it's an elected official that's overseeing them, right? <laughs> so I don't, I don't know what you're complaining about. Yeah, there's no corruption in elected appointments. Yeah. Yes. I'm sure uh, if people knew that there were, like, these secret development industries that were giving millions of dollars to ta- of tax breaks to the richest corporations in the United States, they would be wildly enthused about these unelected boards that have the power to just do that unilaterally. You're, you're claiming they're unelected, but... Mm-hmm. It, they're overseen, especially in New York, by the Democratic Party. <laughs> guys, guys, we're dropping too much truth. Play drop right now. We need to get out of this. They're going to hear us, and they're going to know what we're talking about. Bob Dole. <laughs> From the Washington Post, uh, they uh, he gets about he pays about five point four million dollars for various parcels of land in downtown uh, Baltimore in exchange for committing to you know X whatever development goals. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how much they were undervalued, but they were clearly undervalued. And uh, so essentially, like his his building career gets to the point where he's such a part of the establishment that he's able to to, to make money uh, just off connections. And actually, this Repu- uh, this uh, Washington Post 1982 article mentions that he is, quote, frequently has ventured into Republican Party politics and fundraising. Mm. Um, and so I'm sure this had nothing to do with him buying into the Central and South American fruit business during the Ronald Reagan administration right, right. of the 1980s. Um, but so essentially there's um, 
So essentially from here, in the 1980s, he buys into what's called Occidental Petroleum. Interestingly enough, Occidental Petroleum, uh, through uh, their subsidiary Occidental Chemicals, had uh, just gotten done with... um, basically sterilizing a bunch of American workers. Really? Yeah, so there's this uh, Occidental Petroleum. There's a documentary that comes out in 1976, and this is featured in the documentary Banana Land. This documentary comes out in 1976 that interviews a bunch of workers at the Occidental uh, Chemical uh, Workers. I believe they were in California. They'd been working with a chemical called DBCP. DBCP uh, has, like, sterilized a bunch of these workers. This 1976 documentary comes out. 1977, the United States bans DBCP. But interesting thing happens. Dole has been getting DBCP from Dow Chemical, and uh, they still want to get it. So essentially, Dow Chemical sends uh, Dole a uh, letter saying, hey, we're going to stop selling DBCP because the United States just banned it. Right. And then uh, Dole says, we're going to sue you if you don't give us our DBCP because we need it. Wait, are we going to antagonize this guy for saving his workers a ton <laughs> of money on childcare? care? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so uh, what happens is Dole and DBCP uh, come to this agreement uh, or no. Uh, Dole and Dow. Dole and Dow come to this agreement where uh, Dole, Dow. Dole indemnifies Dow Chemical against all liabilities, I believe in 1977, in exchange for continuing to send them DBCP. And their innovative solution is to dump DBCP on workers in Nicaragua and uh, Costa Rica and other countries where it has not been banned yet. Wow. And this is kind of the subject of the documentary Bananas. Uh, which which uh, is a Swedish documentary, uh, or is made by a Swedish filmmaker who gets sued by Dole for releasing this movie. Sure, sure. He releases it in 2009, and it kind of tells the story of essentially these Nicaraguan workers suing Dole in federal court for being sterilized. Which which creator of a uh, um, movie named Bananas, you think, had more <laughs> legal repercussions in their career <laughs> for choices they made in life? <laughs> Um, but yeah, so the Occidental board actually buys him out for a significant green mail premium in 1984. There's actually like a shareholder lawsuit over this, but the board buys him out for like vastly above the market price after he buys into Occidental Petroleum. So then, um, uh, 1985, he buys Castle and Cook, which we mentioned one of the big five Hawaiian sugar producers, which own Dole. So 1985, he buys it. As a result, he owns their real estate properties in Hawaii. They're still like a significant real estate player there. But significantly, he comes into Dole Foods, 1985. Now, where does uh, the Nebish dictator come in? <laughs> and um, basically, just kind of like from here, you can just go anywhere you want to on a horrific um, uh, labor abuses throughout Dole, um, just from the documentary Bananas, uh, they claim that about 10,000 workers were claimed harmed by DBCP. And it's important to mention with DBCP, they were suing on the sterilization thing because that's the easiest to prove in court. Right. But there's also a lot of people who suspect it's linked to cancers, birth defects, um, uh, kidney failure deaths. You just got to eat bananas <laughs> and other fruits for that. I don't see <laughs> how they got to stand in court. Yeah, it seems like espe- there, you don't really have an excuse when you're picking fruit. The right. fruit's right in front of you. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. 
Um, like uh, one dole, uh, uh, an internal dole company report they bring up in the documentary Bananas, 1978, they found that 10 out of 10 of their workers they checked in Costa Rica were sterile. Wow. Um, 10 out of 10? Yes. They checked 10 workers. All gotcha. of them were sterile. Okay, but um, why didn't they check 11? <laughs> And, um, and and then what happens in like 1979 is um, the U.S. says there's literally no safe level of DBCP for humans. So what Dole does is um, they empty their remaining stocks and then they finally stop using it in the ne- early 1980s. When you say they empty their stocks, what are they put it in a lake like what how did they get rid of it they use it on their bananas oh, wow. and their banana workers yeah they just didn't order anymore <laughs> basically that and um so it is it is something where essentially these it is l- logically consistent like it, it's a pesticide right uh yes and uh un- people are more likely to unionize and be uh very uh pesty if they have kids right yes uh, seems 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 like you know a b follows from a um, but so it's interesting. This documentary Bananas is pretty fascinating, but also the, the Swedish guy who made it, he made a sequel called Big Boys Gone Bananas. And that's basically the story of what... First of all, this guy's naming... <laughs> he needs to get someone else to do the names on these. Big Boys Goes Bananas? Big Boys Gone Bananas. <laughs> <laughs> Look... <laughs> It's like five sequels. Right, yeah. right. Bananas go to the beach. <laughs> Gone Bananas 2. Oh, hell no. Nah. Bananas Christmas Vacation. <laughs> it's it's much more poetic in the original Swedish. <laughs> Big boys in the hood. Bananas be tripping. Did you know that uh, Pete Buttigieg learned Swedish so that he could watch Big Boys Gone Bananas in its original language? <laughs> um, but so his name is Frederick Gerton. And um, basically what happens here is um, he makes this original documentary where Dole is found liable for, mal- for fraud, malice, and misconduct by an L.A. jury, I believe in 2007. They have to pay out, you know, X million dollars. Um, but what happens is, like, one of the attorneys of the um, uh, Nicaraguan workers who were sterilized uh, was, like, accused of fraud. He was later cleared. But essentially what happens, and the documentary is pretty fascinating, uh, just big, uh, <laughs> despite the name, Big Boys Gone Bananas is a pretty interesting documentary because it kind of shows what a major multinational will do if you start putting out bad publicity against their brand. Right. Because he describes, essentially, the, the, this film is supposed to premiere at the L.A. Film Festival, I believe in 2009. Um, and what happens is that before the movie's even screened anywhere, he get, he receives in the mail a cease and desist from Dole over, you know, all these fraudulent claims. Um, Dole sends this cease and desist to every single sponsor of the L.A. Film Festival, wow. including uh, the L.A. Times. Um, and then what happens is they also... He woke up with a pineapple in his bed. <laughs> Um, and then uh, before the, the film premiere at the L.A. Film Festival, articles start to appear, one in the L.A. Times, one in Reuters, about how the movie is fraudulent and how, uh, you know, this lawyer is like had committed fraud and these workers are all lying and these kinds of like planted stories. Um, all websites that comment on this seem to find their comment sections flooded with people saying these workers are fraudsters. Their lawyer has a Ferrari, but they didn't get anything, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so to the point where um, the L.A. Film Festival gets terrified and uh, they actually uh, they remove his film from competition 
and then they have to read a statement about how the lawyer and all of the workers are liars before they screen the film. What? And it's really? just like the most humiliating thing I've yeah. ever seen. Um, but so basically uh, what happens is... Not ap- me. I've watched you do the podcast. <laughs> um, after that... Uh, they uh, they leave the film festival and then the film festival gets like subpoenaed by Dole for like all of their <laughs> all of their emails, recordings, footage relating to the movie. Dole sues him. They sue his company. They sue the producer of the film. Um, and uh, basically, um, uh, something I did find interesting was Dole actually find, files a legal complaint. So Dole sues him. They sue uh, his film company, WG Film. They sue the producer of the film. And then they file an actual legal complaint uh, where they, quote, compare it to the, quote, Nazi-era anti-Semitic film, The Internal Jew. Wow. And this is actually in a legal uh, document filed against him. Uh, This is a direct quote. Uh, They describe the film, The Eternal Jew. (laughs) Uh, and then in these legal documents, they say, quote, one sequence in that film shows a pack of rats in a sewer, followed by scenes of a crowd of Jews on a busy urban East European what? street, unquote. Now, this and, eternal Jew, do they drink a lot of fruit juice? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so this is like an actual legal document filed by the smartest lawyers in the world, yeah. <laughs> hired by Dole against uh, him, claiming that his film is like Eternal Jew, demonizing Dole. And, did they uh, win? No, they did not win. Oh. But Aww. I do want to mention a little bit of history here. The Eternal Jew was actually very ineffective Nazi propaganda because Hitler insisted on recutting it to put these images of rats and stuff to the point where it was very blatant. However, a much more successful but less known piece of propaganda was a movie called Jusus uh, by uh, Josef Goebbels. I, I think I got the pronunciation right. Joseph Goebbels made this propaganda movie that's kind of like, uh, that was actually a financial success in the Third Reich mm-hmm. that tells the story of like this Jewish guy who like um, uh, uh, imprisons some Aryan dude and then like makes his wife sleep with him in order to get his release and, you know, betrays all these people sure, and stuff. Sure, sure, yeah. And so it's kind of like a much more subtle propaganda piece to the point where um, uh, uh, teenagers who saw the film would actually go out and beat up Jews in occupied territories. There were reports of concentration camp guards who saw the film beating up Jews after they saw it. Uh, Heinrich Himmler wanted the SS, everyone in the SS, to watch it. So it is just something where... Um, well, yeah, what was it? Goebbels, pretty, his philosophy about propaganda was that it should never be obvious. Yes. Um, which, you know, I'm, I'm glad we've moved past that... <laughs> And don't have movies where uh, every person, say, from a Middle Eastern background, whenever they're portrayed in a movie, <laughs> is a scheming terrorist. Do you think Goebbels is, like, really mad in hell that no court documents appreciate his cop propaganda movie <laughs> <laughs> and instead insist on comparing them to the much more blatant and less effective propaganda movie <laughs> that uh, was a financial failure in the Third Reich? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyways the point of all that was essentially what happens is that I hope I hope the actors had a like multi film deal would you believe that uh, many of them uh, lived very terrible lives after the war <laughs> <laughs> I believe it um, 
But so what happens is essentially Dole withdraws the lawsuit, but because of this lawsuit, no film company or no insurance companies will insure distribution of the film in the United States. So they have to they countersue Dole, and then Dole uh, the lawsuit is dismissed with prejudice. And, and this is where our Patreon comes in, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we got a copy of this movie. Uh, it's 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 uh, it's on Amazon Prime oh. Video. Um, but the lawsuit's dismissed with prejudice, and the Dole is ordered to pay them about $200,000 for just essentially filing frivolous lawsuits right, to keep right. this thing out of the, the public imagination. Um, and so, you know, look, from there, just take your pick of uh, migrant abuses. We can talk about the Philippines. Uh, there was an Oxfam report. Uh, funnily enough, another former U.S. colony sure. that, uh, for some reason, U.S. multinationals seem to prefer to do business there. Um, there was an Oxfam report, I believe, in 2011 or either that or 2013, essentially being like Dole should remove human because they were putting like little uh, humanely sourced stickers on their bananas Wow! Uh, around this time. And Oxfam was like, uh, hey, we did a study on working conditions on your banana plants in the Philippines and you need to remove that right away. <laughs> um, this is from the, f- the Food Empowerment Project is uh, uh, summarizing this Oxfam report, and they say, quote, time and time again in the Philippines, worker attempts to unionize have been repressed, sometimes using physical violence. In the Philippines, workers on a supply pen- plantation for Dole reported being harassed, intimidated, and held at gunpoint because by the military because of their union activities. And, you know, they also talk about, like, Essentially, uh, they put all these workers on like short-term contracts, and then uh, they can fire them for unionizing by just not renewing their contracts and, and these kinds of things, you know. Um, Human Rights Watch, 2002, Ecuador. They found that Ecuadorian children as young as eight worked on banana plantations for Dole in hazardous conditions, while well, well, adult workers fear firing if they try to exercise their right to unionize. Um, and the, again, from Human Rights Watch, in the course of their work, they were exposed to toxic pesticides, used sharp knives and machetes, hauled heavy loads of bananas, drank unsanitary water, and some were sexually harassed. Roughly 90% of the children told Human Rights Watch that they continued working while toxic fungicides were sprayed from airplanes flying overhead. For their efforts, the children earned an average of $3.50 per day, approximately 60% of the legal minimum wage for banana workers. Um, <clears throat> well, they're 60% of an adult. So, <laughs> How old are these kids, Sean? Eight, uh, as young as eight years old. Wow. Plus, how many of us get to work outside? And really? uh, <laughs> more than 60% of them... Uh, Fewer than 40% of the children were school, still in school by the time they turned 14. And again, from Human, right, wa- Human Rights Watch, only approximately 1% of bananas workers are affiliated with workers' organizations, unions. Wow, Sean, I can't believe you're eating a banana on the show <laughs> while you're reading this information. How dare you not recognize the sacrifice of these migrant workers so that you could get an extra little bit of K in your fucking system. But it's relatively unbruised, which is a benefit of small hands. <laughs> there's, no, there's no ethical consumption and all that. So, oh God. Um, and look, so uh, we don't have time to get to everything, but just to continue, there's another story with from laborrights.org. Now, about were these like banana suppliers, or was this their actual company running these plantations? It's always suppliers, so they have plausible right. deniability. Yeah, because yeah, they can say like, "Oh, we we had no idea that uh, we weren't per- doing that. Just right. that company that we were paying to do these things are doing that." That was the same thing when like. P and uh, P and G, the owners of Gillette, were 
doing that uh, make a make a better man program is that mm-hmm. if you just do a little bit of Googling, you can find out that like, yeah, a lot of their products have child labor in them. <laughs> and then when you point that out, people on Twitter are like, it's the supply chain. Uh. They can't, can, this multi-billion dollar company that's one of the largest in the world cannot account for their supply chain. Mm-hmm. It's like Apple, another fruit company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and fruit loop. Damn, I just I just want the super woke characters in that Procter and Gamble ad to uh, react to the children on the Dole plantation getting sexually harassed. <laughs> uh, three underage women told um, Human Rights Watch that they were sexually harassed in the course of their work. Uh, so yeah, but they can also do that with their own company. <laughs> uh, according to Human Rights Watch, more than seventy percent of the children interviewed uh, in Ecuador said that they worked on plantations that almost exclusively supply Dole. Um, and, you know, again, similar story with Colombian flower workers. Uh, they report that they were made to work uh, while toxic pesticides were sprayed. And, again, it's something where we mentioned DBCP. Now you say that, but I'm seeing a, a donut in front of you. <laughs> the, uh, we mentioned DBCP. The you know the number one ingredient in your donut? What's that? Flour. <laughs> no, actual flowers for Valentine's Day and shit. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, they were, uh, <laughs> apparently, they, Dole had, like, a, a, they had splendor flowers. Hey, yes. What did you get your wife for Valentine's Day? <laughs> the tears of migrant workers. <laughs> uh, uh, Sean, all no, of us Mr. got our significant others Look at Mr. There. Showoff over here. <laughs> uh, splendor Flowers was a subsidiary of Dole. Um, they mainly, they supplied flowers for the retail in the U.S. market, including Walmart uh, from laborrights.org. Uh, workers at Splendor say they were motivated to form a union in 2004 because of worsening working conditions. Company assigned more and more flower beds to each worker, making the workload intolerable. Uh, they'd been firing sick workers and old workers. Um, and essentially, Dole... Uh, uh, in October 2006, they closed Splendor Flowers uh, as a result of this unionization. Wow. And uh, they were also getting sprayed. Oh, yes. Uh, insufficient protection against toxic pesticides reportedly led to headaches, nausea, impaired vision, conjunctivitis, rashes, asthma, miscarriages, and uh, respiratory and neurological problems. And so it is something where if you look at the Banana Land documentary, DBCP, like the evidence is very clear, but a lot of the pesticides or the mix of pesticides, there's just not been enough scientific study, but the workers who are actually being sprayed with the things report headaches. I'm sure there's just money flowing in for scientific studies on this. All of this philanthropy that David H. Murdoch is going through is on the health effects of his pesticides. On his workers. Yes. But I guess last thing I'll go through for these labor conditions, because I know we've kind of gone along here. Uh, Essentially, the the big... Oh, it also should be mentioned that uh, Dole in the United States, there was an E. coli outbreak in uh, in 2016 uh, that killed at least one person, hospitalized, I think, a dozen. And in April 2016, just from Wikipedia, the U.S. Department of Justice had convinced a commenced a criminal investigation into Dole's role in the outbreak of listerosis, listeriosis. Um, essentially, they said that the FDA inspection reports uh, using free, uh, found that in um, July 2014, Dole carried out swab tests of surfaces in the Springfield plant, which returned positive uh, results for listeria, but still did not um, cease production. Uh, they found positive results five more times in 2014, three more times in late 2015, but continued production until the outbreak. Wow. Well, 
I think with like issues like this, the best solution is a market solution. <laughs> and uh, as consumers, I think we have a responsibility to show our disapproval of these practices by never buying any food again. <laughs> well, and if you do buy food while opposing these practices, you are a hypocrite. Yes. What is that listeria thing? Is it a disease or is listeria? Uh, it's clean mouth disease. So bacteria. Yeah. Um, My, removes ninety nine. Well, there are a whole string of E. coli and listeriosis right. outbreaks at there suppliers have, for Dole. There have essentially been a bunch of uh, E. coli and other outbreaks at uh, Dole suppliers, like bag, bagged lettuce. Excuse and him like for that. giving his workers minty fresh breath. Look, he's right. If you eat his products, you'll live forever. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, you know, all sorts of these outbreaks, but I guess just like the last thing I want to go through is probably the most horrifying, which is essentially what's happened in Colombia. Uh, so the AUC is a right, was a right wing paramilitary organization in Colombia. They were fighting against the left wing FARC, but essentially they also just got into a racket with, uh, multinationals where it's like hey we'll protect your property rights for protection money but also if you have say union workers labor organizers competing farmers we'll take care of it for you and you know again if you want to horrify yourself you can go on youtube and watch testimonials of people in colombia talking about what the auc did to them and all of these horrific human rights abuses to the point where in 2001 the auc was designated a terrorist organization by the united states uh whereupon chiquita banana continued paying them, which is a federal crime. And Eric Holder, later the attorney general, was their lawyer at this time. And he, <laughs> he, he got them a sweetheart deal where they paid like $25 million and, you know, didn't admit any wrongdoing. And, of course, none of this money goes to the people, you know, uh, well, he's just murdered. Doing, he's just doing his job defending his clients. <laughs> you, you think that you want to just get rid of uh, people's right to legal representation? Um. But so importantly, in 2017, Colombia's prosecutor general's office announced that it would be uh, bringing charges against nearly 200 corporations, including Dole, for uh, willfully paying off death squads and mercenary groups responsible for the decade of terror. Right. So, so as attorney general, though, Eric Holder put aside his personal connect or his, his, his previous connections in his uh, previous professional capacity and actually prosecuted these people for their wrongdoings <laughs> as was his job as attorney general. That's correct? Yes. <laughs> yes. Eric Holder, uh, he, was, uh, he was doing the Elizabeth Warren thing and ensuring that the banana workers got the biggest settlement possible <laughs> from uh, Dole and Chiquita Banana. But Chiquita Banana was probably the most blatant, but Dole was involved in this as well. Uh, just from uh, This is from PS Magazine from the Columbia Prosecutor General's Office. Uh, the complaint says, quote, Although this resolution does not analyze in particular the responsibility of any person, it is clear that the banana business voluntarily financed an illegal armed group with the specific purpose of ensuring security regardless of price or the method used. Um, there was a lawsuit follow, filed in 2009, dismissed in 2010, but it is worth going through it. This is from Cleveland.com uh, that it alleges Dole Food made regular payments for at least a decade in a banana growing region to illegal far right Colombia militias that killed thousands. The plaintiffs are relatives of 51 men allegedly murdered by a militia belonging to the AUC. Uh, the victims were either involved in labor union organizing or were small farmers fighting attempts by Dole to obtain their land and plant bananas, the suit claims. 
And um, basically, this is dismissed. Uh, I don't exactly know why, but they had testimony from jailed a, uh, a jail several AUC commanders, who um, essentially said uh, that when Dole wanted the militias to take action against someone, a plantation manager would directly call a militia subcommander, quote, and the AUC would go take care of it, unquote. And again, terrorist organizations, murderers, rapists, you know. Disgusting. Yeah. But that's, you know, where your bananas come from. And uh, let's not make snap judgments, Yogi. <laughs> look, if you want to live to be 125 years old, dole bananas are <laughs> definitely the way to do it as long as you're in the United States or Europe. <laughs> um, but, you know, so he's dumping pesticides and all these workers, possibly killing people for union, organizi- union organizing. Um, but. I guess we can close this episode out by maybe hearing one more time from the man himself. I have a, a, a video he gave to Pepperdine University, and we mentioned, you know, essentially if you give X million, you just get to uh, ramble to people, and uh, everyone will kind of politely ignore that feeling of uh, wanting to leave the room when a 96-year-old is talking. I, I uh, don't know anything about that, uh, if you haven't heard the premium Bill Gates episode. <laughs> You see mom and dad walk down the street and they're both overweight and they have three children walking behind them. Nine times out of ten you'll see the children are overweight too. And that's something that we intend to try to work with somewhere. We'd like to work with Pepperdine. Uh, I would hope that Pepperdine would put some programs together and we'd help supply them. Because we have... So basically, I like that someone took a flash photograph in the middle of that. Like they really wanted to capture that moment. <laughs> <laughs> I was there when David H. Murdoch <laughs> said that fat parents are making <laughs> fat children. Um, uh, tw- uh, Twenty-eight minutes. He goes on a uh, interesting tangent. They uh, were at the football games and the basketball games, all looking real nice and so forth. He even says he's being horny in an old way. Basically there, he's talking about the cheerleaders at Pepperdine University where he's speaking and how they uh, can't wear the outfits they used to wear anymore because they get fat later. (laughs) And if they just ate the way he wants them to, they wouldn't get fat later. Now here we're looking pleasing to the eyes and all that (laughs) stuff, and I found myself more alert than a spring chicken on Easter. But I just love, like... Just I tell you what, I was saluting that flag like I just got back from fighting the Nazis again. 
But just imagine being in that audience at Pepperdine University and having to be like, just think about the hundred million he's giving <laughs> us. It's okay. Good. Oh, now he's talking about his dead There's wife. Like a board of, yeah, board of trustees is just standing next to him. Can I give a counterpoint? Yes. Um, recently, uh, making the airwaves was um, hip hop uh, future star Robbie Tripp mm-hmm. um, with his song of the summer, Chubby Sexy. Some of you may know him as uh, uh, Curvy Wife Guy, and he's he's got a single. Curvy Wife Guy, you're going to need an extra large casket for that <laughs> fat bitch you married. This jam is dedicated to all the curvy queens out there. Oh, my God. <laughs> all right, well, I don't think we're going to be able to end this any better because than that. A lot of terms out there Jesus Christ, this is terrible. <laughs> All right, all right. Before we get sued. I just want the audience to know, check out uh, all of uh, Frederick Gurdon's films, uh, Bananas, uh, Big Boys Gone Bananas, but also one that's coming out soon, uh, Hannah Take Hannah, Hannah Bobana. And her sisters. Thanks <laughs> for stepping on my joke, Pop. <laughs> Sorry. Fuck you forever. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realize. You were oh, no, I'm just fucking waiting 40 goddamn minutes to do a <laughs> Hannah Bobana Fofana goddamn joke. To have it be stepped on right when I hit the punchline. I'm so yeah, sorry, you, you, Yogi. Can, you can wait for him to finish and then you can tag Jesus it. Jesus Christ. I'm so sorry. It's fine. It's over. Let's move on. <laughs> his next money, uh, big. His next movie, Big Body Women and My Curvy Wife. <laughs> um, yeah, what if he gets woke in his last 10 years? Turn the song off. This is so terrible. <laughs> But I guess to kind of close us out today, David H. Murdoch is, uh, you know, the guy who uh, uh, wants everybody to live 125 years by eating Dole products and fruits <laughs> and know, veggies. You can just turn it off. You can just turn it off, Andy. <laughs> no, I'm, we're going out on this song. Uh, to close, we, we might get sued for it. Yeah. To, uh, yeah, this is the legal strategy Dole is going to <laughs> <laughs> All right, get the curvy boy. <laughs> I can't wait till Dole sues us, and then in the court papers, they're like, during their episode, they mentioned the Nazi film The Eternal <laughs> Jew, but they also mentioned Jew Swiss, Jew Sus, and Sean makes the argument that Jew Sus was more effective, but at Dole, we actually believe that The Eternal Jew was the better propaganda <laughs> movie. That's why we mentioned it in the original lawsuit, and we would like this court to rule on the merits of which of the Nazi propaganda movies were actually most <laughs> effective and uh, most well made the only eternal Jew we support is Bernie Sanders <laughs> <laughs> I hear he's rich and cheap I read Politico now many people in the Warsaw ghetto were underweight but if they'd had a smoothie every morning like <laughs> my company makes they might have been able to survive the war and then Roman Polanski wouldn't have done all those horrible things because his parents were murdered. Our impression of him is just turning more into droopy dog. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I guess to close this out, David H. Murdoch believes... Roman Polanski, now that's a man who appreciates small women. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I was in Jack Nicholson's house with Roman Polanski and some of the Pepperdine cheerleaders... <laughs> That was back before they were overweight. (laughs) The best thing about owning an island is the amount of overweight people that aren't allowed on your island. Listen, you fat motherfucker. (laughs) You're going to sink my goddamn island. (laughs) 
the benefit of owning an island is when someone's overweight, you can put them in a catapult facing the water and ask them if they think they're going to float. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess to close this out, you know, you can Google Dole all you want, see all the different labor abuses we didn't get to. But the point is this guy is, um, you know, talking about how everybody can live to 125 if they just eat fruits and veggies and fish. Uh, meanwhile, he's dumping pesticides on the very fruits that he sells. He's dumping pesticides on workers and people who happen to live next to his plantations. Right. They're abusing their workers, murdering them, uh, or, you know, allegedly. And, uh, you know, it's just all these different uh, horrific things where it's like his his success is entirely based on this exploitation. And, you know, in the case of Hawaii, just straight up colonial land theft. So. Yep. I guess the point is, you know what? If you're a homeless veteran out there, uh, study up on this man <laughs> and just keep going to those diners and eventually you're going to get your small business loan that will allow you to terrorize South and Central <laughs> America. Uh, and then Bill Gates will get married on your island. And with that, this has been Grubstakers. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Yogi Boyle. Steve Jeffries. Uh, give, us, if, give us five stars on iTunes. Even if you don't like us, it's actually a prank where you can trick people into listening to us. <laughs> and if you don't know what to write, just write, describe what you think our skin is like. <laughs> just go into depth about like, or your skin, anyone's skin. Just write about skin, yeah. skin texture, um, possible blemishes. Doesn't really, you know, um, moles, uh, smooth skin, uh, flaky skin. It just, just write about skin. Hmm. Why do you want them writing about skin? I don't know. It's just something to write about. Okay, great. Oh, and uh, patreon.com slash grubstakers. You can give us money for this bullshit, but uh, you really shouldn't encourage us. Shout out to our 69th patron. Uh, you know, I know it's kind of a played out internet joke, but we are very uh, pleased that we can honor the 69th Waffen SS division, <laughs> which this <laughs> his subscription is dedicated to. And now we're on our goal to get to 420 patrons <laughs> so we can honor our Fuhrer who gives us the inspiration we need every week to keep recording this podcast. That's that's what everybody's talking about when they when they say 42069, the 69th Waffen SS, uh, and their brave campaign against those villagers in Estonia. Uh, every time they committed an atrocity, their commander would say, "Nice." So body positive.